All right, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 18, and we're going to pick it back up in verse 6. Paul has been preaching and trying to convince the Jews. Every time he goes into a city, as we've seen this over and over again, as we're going through the, the book of Acts, Paul cannot shake it. He can't shake it. Why? Because he loves the Jew. He loves his brother. He wants to see him come to the Lord. And many of them do, but at times, like here in verse 6, it says, And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. Henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. And we talked about that, and I would encourage you, if you're listening to the broadcast, you go back and listen uh, to last time. Uh, to get my commentary on that. Uh, but just as a basic recap, you know, Paul looking, no doubt, knew the Scriptures. And so I'm sure that he understood that God had given this mandate to Ezekiel, who was basically a watchman on the wall. And he felt the necessity to share the gospel, not just with the Jews, but really with anybody. And because he knew that God did not wish that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. We all should have that kind of desire, to be honest with you. I want to see people saved. I've, uh, it hasn't been too long ago, I had a, a friend and, and a guy that I just kept associating with, even though, uh, you know, he, he was one of those type that loves to talk about God, you, you know. But you kind of question whether or not he really believed it. And... Well, we was talking with another friend, and one time, you know, he, the conversation got around. Anyway, he made a comment. He's told my other friend, he goes, yeah, Doug just wants to see me saved. And, I, and he said it in front of me. It wasn't like he said it behind me. And I said, you're right. I, I really do. I do. You know, I want to see you come to a better knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because I'm not sure what you know about him right at the moment is going to get you into heaven. You know, because many people say, I believe in Jesus. But the Bible says you believe there's one God. The devil also believes and trembles. Has it made any difference in your life? It's the same way with the scriptures. As we're going to see, it's going to, this chapter, as we finish it out, and we are going to finish it tonight, it's going to conclude with Apollos teaching and expounding the word and proving from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Not only do we want to lead people to Jesus, but we want to lead them to Jesus with the Scriptures. One of the biggest mistakes that I've seen people make who come to me and said, you know, who've told me that they've never really led anybody to the Lord. Because, I mean, think about it. I mean, you'll hear me say this a lot, you know, as long as the Lord keeps me here, uh, and I'll keep saying it. Healthy sheep reproduce. Common sense. You have your little fenced-in area, you put your little male in there and a female in there, you should have little lambs in a matter of time. Am I right? If they're healthy. Well, the Bible's, you know, if we as children of God, the sheep of the Lord, the sheep of his pasture, if we're healthy, we should be reproducing other Christians. You know, you can even use the analogy, you know, Jesus said a tree is known by its fruit. If you go up to an orange tree, you should get what? Oranges. If you go to an apple tree, you should get apples. If you go to a Christian tree, you should get Christians. But what happens when you don't? There's something wrong. 
Something is amiss when we do not reproduce. And that's the state of the church today, gang. And it's a problem. It's fixable, but it is a problem. What causes us to reproduce? Well, knowing the gospel first is a good thing. You've got to know the gospel. You've got to believe the gospel. And then you have to be, of course, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But even with all that, if that's in place, when you share the gospel, so often we try to do that off the top of our head. You know, we just tell people, you know. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that per se. But in the mind of the unbeliever, if you do not crack a Bible open and say, let me show you right here. Let me read this to you. In their mind, they're going, ah, well, he's making that up or she's making that up. Or they're thinking you simply put that together or that's just your interpretation. How many times have you heard that? That's just your interpretation. It was, even in my own case, when I got serious with the Lord, and I was only like 23 at the time, the man who did it had a Bible in one hand. He had that Bible. And he asked me a simple question, are you a Christian? And of course, in my deluded state, I said yes, because I just thought I was. But yet he knew me, he knew me well. And of course, if you know my story, you, you know it was my brother. And he knew me well. And he says, well, I'm glad you said that, but let me show you something. And he opened up to Timothy, and he begins to read. And I won't go into all that, but the fact is he showed me from the Scriptures. You know, first off, I wasn't living what I said I believed. And that there was something wrong. Because if you don't live what you believe, belief will dictate what you do. You know, so often in the body of Christ, we're more concerned with what people do. We want to change behavior. We're not concerned about changing a soul or converting a mind. What we're concerned about is changing a behavior. You know, we see somebody, well, this man's an alcoholic, and we, we just need to get him delivered from that. Let's take him to Jesus. Well, I understand that mindset. And on the surface, it sounds better, but we're really more concerned about his physical state than we are his spiritual state. The problem is, even if we delivered a man from alcoholism, or whatever the ailment or whatever the uh, uh, sin is that he's involved in, even if I get him to stop doing certain things does not necessarily make him saved, you see. So a man can be totally healed totally by a doctor, but yet still wind up in hell with a perfectly, you understand what I'm saying? It just doesn't make any sense. We need to be more concerned about winning the soul of a man or witnessing to that soul. And of course, the Holy Spirit's one that does the converting. My point being is that when we share the gospel, as we're going to see in this chapter, we need to do it with the word of God. Keep a Bible handy. Use it. That's why I tell everybody, when you come here, bring a Bible with you. You know, bring a Bible. I challenge you. I mean, what is wrong with the body of Christ today? Technology. I have been mocked and ridiculed by so many pastors because Doug just, Doug is an anti-technology. Doug's anti this. I'm not anti-technology. But I'm anti-anything that keeps you out of the Word of God. Even when I was pastoring Calvary Chapel, they, I heard, you know, they, they talked and talked and, and finally got me talked into putting up my notes and everything else as I was preaching and the scriptures on the big screen, which I had never done. And at first I thought, oh, well, that was painless. It didn't seem to matter. 
And I thought, oh, okay, well, you guys can keep doing it then. You know, no big deal. I didn't have to look at it. Until about three weeks into it. Now, this was a church gang that everybody brought a Bible. Always. This is a, a church that loved the Word of God. And I'm not just saying they loved the Word of God. But one thing I noticed after about three weeks was that when I said, open your Bible with me too, I don't know how many it was, but I, I didn't see all the, and hear all the pages turning that I used to. And I looked out and I noticed a few people just sitting there. And I was a little bewildered at that. And then I realized, oh, they're just staring at the screen. Some people would say, well, what's the difference? One is mindless acceptance, and the other is interactive, you see. When you have to physically turn the page and you're going through it with me, you see that I'm quoting it correctly, you understand that the exergesis that's being delivered is accurate, you're, you're being a Berean, you're checking the scriptures to see whether those things are so. But you need to look at that yourself. My point being is that if you do that yourself, then when you're witnessing to other Christians, do that with them. Open a Bible. Show it to them. Let me take them through the Roman road, if that's the one you want to use. Whatever method that you decide to, to use or whatever you're trying to explain to them about Jesus, use a Bible to do it. Don't just quote it off the top of your head, even if you can. And, and many of you can, but sometimes that's not enough. You need to show it to them, get them back into the Word of God. So even, you know, when we do, but we're going to see that tonight in the Scriptures that we're looking at. So Paul... When he was talking to these guys, these guys were blaspheming against themselves. They rejected the gospel, and you know what? That's going to happen. Preach the gospel, witness, crack the scriptures, show. Some people are going to read this. Some people are going to be converted. Some people are going to have their minds renewed. Praise God. You know, one person's been added to the kingdom. Some people are going to balk at it. They're going to reject it. Their blood is on their own head. You know, our job is not to convert. Our job is to witness to people and allow the Holy Spirit to convert them. But make no mistake about it. It's the Holy Spirit that does the work. Look at verse 7. And Paul, he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God whose house joined hard to the synagogue, which means it shared a common wall, okay? And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now, those of you who followed my encouragement to read Corinthians will have a little something extra in your pay envelope uh, if you did that, and you'll get a little more out of this tonight. When Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians, he chastised them, if you remember right, for having broken into little factions, which is what happened to the Never forget, when you read the book of Corinthians, both of those letters are letters of correction when he writes to them. And Paul was, you know, trying to straighten out some problems that they had fallen into, but they had broken into these little factions. And he said that, you know, some of them were saying, I am of Paul or I am of Apollos, or I am of Jesus. And Paul points out very clearly in his letter to the Corinthians that this was a mark of carnality. That's what he said. Matter of fact, Paul put such strength in his words. He said, I thank God that I baptized none of you 
except Crispus and Gaius, he says, and if I baptized any other, I know not, for God sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. I think it's interesting that Paul says that the way he does. And many denominations have a problem with it. Matter of fact, those who believe and adhere to water baptism regeneration will never teach through this passage of Scripture in Corinthians because it totally contradicts what they teach and believe. And uh, Church Christ, apostolics, they fall into this category. There's many others who believe that when you... They, they, they so believe that it's not just the gospel, but you have to be baptized in order to be saved. But when you read Paul's writings, Paul says, look, I thank God, he said, that I baptized none of you. For God sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. As I've often pointed out, if their doctrine is correct, then that one statement by Paul is not only, not only is it heretical, but it's blasphemous. Because Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you. For God sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. If their doctrine's correct. The fact is, is that Paul didn't worry that much about baptizing. He allowed other people to do it. So often we think that only a pastor can do it. It's not true. Matter of fact, <laughs> in the early church, hardly any pastor did it. It was done by the congregation. They would do it to each other. They would go out and baptize. And there was people, they, they, they just did it. But as time progressed and as traditions and those type of things entered into the church, we got away from allowing the congregants. Never forget, what's the Bible tell us in the Ephesians? What's the purpose of the church? So often people will say, well, the purpose of the church is to evangelize the world, Doug. No, it's not. It really isn't. It tells us in Ephesians that he has set some in the church, first apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. It's the church. We are to teach the church. We are to help them mature as Christians so that they, in turn, can do the work of the ministry, which would include baptizing other Christians. I myself was baptized by a friend of mine at the time when I was like 23. And I just wanted to have it done. I was reading, and it said, you know, those that believe it are baptized. And I thought, wow, let's see, I've never done that. And I remember calling Rick up, and I said, hey, Rick, how do I get baptized? He said, ah, you want me to do it? I said, sure. <laughs> he took me down, drug me out into a pond, and uh, that's where I did it. And I was uh, glad that I did, because I was just being obedient to the Lord. My point is, is that Paul really didn't see that importance in his own ministry. He allowed other people to do it, as we're going to see. He just did. So once again, if you have the opportunity to do those type of things, do them. You know, it, it's like communion. You know, it's like anything. We so often think that if a pastor isn't holding a cup or the bread somehow, it isn't holy. I got news for you, gang. The Jews and everybody else in the early Christian church, they broke bread all the time together, had communion together. They did it. I encourage you to do it as a family. It's great to break bread and to have a communion service, even amongst a husband and wife. It's fun. You can do it. You don't have to have 
the blessing of a pastor. You just don't, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't have to stand over here and go, you know, call me, settle, holy, you know, that, you, just, you don't need that. It doesn't have to be like that, you know. It, it is a sacred thing, but it's, a, it's just as sacred if you do it as if I do it or anybody else does it. You understand? It's just the way it was. So, let's look at verse 8. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Although, like I said, not by Paul. Paul was the one that baptized them. He, he, he led them to the Lord, but he allowed other people to do it. So, uh, is, is baptism important? Let me touch on that real quick. Uh, to the extent that you are identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It has no salvational purpose whatsoever. Matter of fact, there was a hymn written against the heresy of water baptism regeneration. You might have heard it. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's an accurate doctrine. Because it's only the blood of Jesus that, that cleanses us from sin. And so water has nothing to do with that. It is simply something that we are identifying. We are making a statement that we have entered into the, a, a covenant with, with Jesus Christ or to the, with God by Jesus Christ. That, and, and through his death, burial, and resurrection, it, that's all it is. And so often people make so much out of it. But yet Paul himself, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, said, I thank God when he wrote to the Corinthians, I have baptized any of you. And he didn't say it nicely because it was a letter of correction. These guys had broken up. And think about this. They're all walking around going, well, I'm of Apollos because he's just an eloquent speaker and Paul is not very good. And some say, well, I like Paul because I like his letters. And some people were saying, well, I like Peter. You know, kind of sounds like oh, I'm a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. And I want you to think about this. When you go back and you start studying church history, you find that every denomination, hands down, was started by some man. Okay? Even the one we're in right now. Actually, two brothers with a third guy. Who, the third guy you never hear about. Who actually I like better, George Whitfield. Read his stuff. Great guy. They don't claim him anymore, but he's a good man. Okay? But they all started. But, you know, and then people were like, well, I'm of John. You know, and I'm sure there was others out there going, but I'm of Charles. And there were some going, I'm of George Whitfield. And it's crazy because Paul writing to the Corinthian church says, that's a mark of carnality. The fact is we are all one in who? Christ. We're all Christians. You know, it doesn't matter what the sign over the door is. You know, it just doesn't. As long as we were in the Lord. And as long as we are walking in the truth of the scriptures and practicing according to that, you know, I, I don't want to hear somebody, I don't, pastor or pew warmer, I don't want somebody coming to me, giving me your opinion, you know, about what you think about certain aspects of the church or how we operate. Give me chapter and verse. If you're going to do something, I don't care whether it's baptism or, 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 or ordination. Give me chapter and verse. Tell me why, scripturally, you think that certain things are okay and why certain things are not okay. At least give me your argument scripturally. Because the scriptures mean something to me. It should mean something to you. It is our guidance in practice within the body of Christ. 
And this is what Paul, and of course, uh, Apollos is going to do as we see. Look at verse 9. Then spake the Lord to Paul in a night by a vision, and said, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. Hmm. He tells Paul, don't be afraid. It's been said that many a good thing has not been done because of fear. No doubt, I, this is absolute fact. Many things are not done strictly out of fear. People are just afraid. And Paul, at this particular point, had quite a reason to be afraid. The fact is, is that every time we've seen him preach, everything happens. Either revival or revolt, which landed him in prison. It, it, it landed him with stripes being beaten and even stoned. So, yeah, he had a little bit of a reason to be afraid. But God comes in at this particular point and tells him not to be afraid. He says, for I am with thee. That's why you shouldn't be afraid, for I am with thee. And I love that part. And no man is going to hurt thee. The thing I want to point out to you is that it's the presence of the Lord that dispels fear. It always does. I, there's been a few times in my life when I have dealt with the issue of fear either about a circumstance that was going on at that particular time or just about something that was unknown, even in the ministry. Just the unknown sometimes can cause you to fear. You know, one of the earmarks of the end times, the Bible tells us in the book of Luke, is that men's hearts will be failing them for fear, for looking after those things which are coming upon the earth. So fear is the absence of the consciousness, if you will, of God's presence. Because God tells Paul, don't be afraid. Here's why. Because I'm with you. And no man's going to hurt you. So it's that conscious knowing that God is with you that dispels the fear. Even in my own life, when I had those moments of fear, it was the Lord that would come in and go, why are you afraid? I'm with you. You know, Jesus made a promise to you. Don't ever forget it. He said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Never. Never means what, gang? Never. Never. And you realize there's no stipulation on that. He didn't make a condition on it. I will never leave thee if you're good. I will never leave thee if you never make a mistake. I will never leave you if you never sin. He didn't say that. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Period. That's what I love about God. That's what I love about the Lord. And even in my own life, there's times I need to be reminded of that. I need it. I need it. And Paul needed it at this moment. Because I have no doubt that there was some fear running through him. Otherwise, the Lord wouldn't have told him, be not afraid. Because I'm with you. I will protect you. I do think that the question kind of begs to be answered. Why did the Lord not protect Paul physically in Lystra and in the other places where he was beaten, where he was stoned? You know, 
Why didn't he then? And I have a definitive answer for you. I don't know. I don't know. Why is it sometimes that the Lord allows us to endure the pain of a situation? Why does he do that? I, I don't know, but, I, but I, I, have a, I have a hinkling of an idea that he's trying to show me my, or to keep me totally dependent upon him. See, God wants us to be totally dependent upon him. Totally. That's a place where not many people ever reach, gang. I'm being honest with you. Not many people get there. But I would encourage you to try to be totally dependent upon God. One of the things I love about Pastor Chuck, and one of the greatest Bible teachers has probably ever been, and he's just a great guy, humble as the day was long. And it was said about him by many other pastors, was that Chuck just expected God to bless him. Not because he deserved it, but in spite of the fact that he didn't. Because God had called him, God had chosen him, and God simply was with him. But that can be said of you. God's chosen you. God has blessed you. And God is with you. And whatever happens, you know, I, I, I've always taken the Job stance when it comes to this kind of thing. Because Job had a statement, and some people like it, and some people hate it, but I love it. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Though he take my life, I know, I know that in his, it would be for my betterment. Whatever the Lord would allow to happen to me is for my betterment. Even though I might not see it at that moment, it would be. And so, at this particular time in Paul's walk and, and where he's at, the Lord does come and really minister to him and give him a direction going, look, don't worry, don't fear. I'm with you, and I will not allow anybody to touch you. And so uh, I'm sure Paul took it to heart. He was told to be bold and to speak out. Paul was there in this city, and, and, and the corruption that was in Corinthian, you know, in Corinth. I would encourage you, go back and, and when you get the time, read chapter 1 and 2 of Romans, okay? Because Paul was at Corinth when he wrote the book of Romans. This is where he was at. And when you read chapter 1 and 2, where Paul talks about uh, you know, the licentiousness of mankind and how they were given to evil doing that which was unseemly, you know, and the rampantness of homosexuality and all the things that Paul talks about and how they worship the creator or the creation more than the creator. This was stuff he was writing from what he saw around him. The, 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 the city of Corinth was just absolutely debauchery at its worst. And so Paul was writing from a very personal experience type situation. So it kind of, it's kind of interesting to me, and it seems almost contradictory when God tells Paul, you know, don't be afraid, go ahead and speak up, no man's going to hurt thee, for I have many people in this city. What? <laughs> wait, wait a minute. <laughs> this, is, this is sin central. This is like Las Vegas on steroids. 
sinful. This is debauchery at its worst. And yet God tells Paul, don't worry about it. I have many people in this city. And I thought, wow. And I know what Paul said about that city because I can read Romans 1 and 2. But I also understand what Paul wrote in Romans 5, 20, when he said, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. So regardless of the situation, so often we find ourselves in the midst of a group of people that seem so bad. And I've worked a couple places and it was like, Lord, oh dear Jesus, get me out of this place, you know. You just feel like you're casting pearls before swines. And, and, and you know, don't ever give up on anybody, okay? I'm, I'm telling you that firsthand. And I was a young, young Christian. I was not yet in the ministry as far as pastoring goes, but I certainly was doing a lot of ministry. And I had a good friend of mine, uh, Rick Sturgill again. And I remember Rick called him. We were both really young in the Lord. And this is before he went to Bible college and became a pastor. It was so many years ago. But I remember him calling me up. He says, Doug, I got this friend. He says, I really want to lead him to the Lord. Will you come and help me? And I said, yeah, man, come pick me up. You know, we were ready. To, so I had my Bible all tucked up. And I used to carry one big enough to choke a mule, buddy. It was huge. And I had it underneath my arm. And we went down to, and we show up out in the middle of nowhere to this trailer. And, and we go in there, and here this guy is in, and he didn't tell me this before we got there. The guy was a paraplegic, so he was in a wheelchair. And right away, you know, I, I, I felt sorry for him because of that. You know, and I thought, wow, you know, being a young Christian, I don't know why I thought that had to do with anything. I just felt bad for the guy. And so Rick kind of opened up the conversation, and Rick kind of looked at me and like, take it away, Doug. You know, so I just start witnessing. And I didn't know enough scripture. I probably couldn't have quoted three verses if I had to have. And I just start giving this guy my own personal testimony. And I'm just laying it out, thick and as heavy as I possibly I'm telling him everything. And how Jesus delivered me from all this sin and wretchedness that was in my life. And I probably went on for a half hour. And so at the end of it, I make this invitation to him. I said, so do you want to give your life to Jesus? He went, no, no, not really. And I was like, what? And I, I'm not making this up. I said, did you not hear anything I said? He goes, I heard everything you said. He goes, my gosh, man, look how rotten you were. You needed it. <laughs> yeah, I learned a couple things out of that. I was so mad. And I thought, you know what, your blood be upon your own head. From now on I go to the, yeah, that's what I felt like. I didn't say it at the time. But I left there dejected, <laughs> feeling, oh man, this guy's just, you know, he's, jump ahead about four years, four or five years. One time in my life I actually found myself singing, not playing, but singing in a quartet, of all things. Never thought I'd ever do it. But I found myself singing in a quartet. And, and uh, we were kind of traveling from, you know, going around church to church and doing that thing. Well, we got invited to this one church where Rick, my friend, was now uh, the assistant pastor at. And so it was like, great, you know. And, and so we get down there, and we're singing, and we're having a good time. And the place was packed. And, and I, I, we get through like half of this, the set that we're doing, and we're singing this great song. And I look 
down the aisle because I'm kind of in the middle guy in the quartet and I'm, I'm looking down the aisle and I see this face that for some, it's familiar to me. I'm going, where do I, and I noticed it was guy, this guy in a wheelchair. And I'm going, how do I, and the next thing I know, I saw his hand come up and he just kind of waved it because he saw me looking at it. And it was like, and then it just clicked. I was like, oh my gosh, that's, the, that's that guy. And so after we got done, you know, I went down there and listened to him and here, maybe a few months after I had been there, somebody else went, of course, and talked to him, and, and he gave his life to Jesus. And so he'd been serving the Lord the whole time, and here I thought he was just fodder for the fire. And, you know, so one man plants, another man waters. It's God that gives the increase. My point being, never give up on anybody. You know, even Paul, here he is in the midst of this sinful city, of the worst sort, Corinth was. And yet God says, I have many people there. Now, there's a sovereignty doctrine here that I would like to point out to you. It's not just that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. But I do think, listen to me, if God is sovereign, it's common sense. If God knows and is in control of everything, does he not know who's going to be saved? And the answer is obvious. It's a rhetorical question. The obvious, yes, he knows. So God can say to Paul, don't be afraid to speak, for I have many people in this city, even if they had not yet become one, you understand, because in the mind of God it was already done. Even with Jesus, I love the fact that it says that he was crucified from the foundations of the earth. So even when man fell, when Adam, before he even fell, God had already put it, not only put it in his mind to do it, but in God's view, it was already done. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the amazement of God's grace and the way he works out because his ways are not our ways and his ways are so far above us and so far past our finding out. But God is in control. God is totally sovereign and God knows and thus he tells Paul, listen, don't be afraid to speak. I have many, many people in this area, in this city. And he continued there, verse 11, for a year and six months, if you're taking notes, make note of that. Doing what? Teaching the word of God among them. Make note of that. Paul, being the man of God that he was, and I think any good man of God, will invest his time in people. I do not understand pastors who are standoffish. Do us a favor. Get out of the ministry. Because you're not ministering. If you're not going to invest yourself in the lives of people, what are you doing? The only thing you're investing in is your wallet, like it or not. God sent us to invest in people. We love people. We want to see people come to Christ. We want to see people grow in the Lord. We want to see people grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul was there, and he preached the gospel. And those that believe, he spent a year and a half teaching the Word of God to them. You can't be standoffish and do that. You know, it's, have you ever, most of us have been to Walmart. I'm not picking on Walmart. <laughs> Even though it would be easy. But if you ever, you go into Walmart, you know, and sometimes you go through the line. And I have to admit, me and my wife, I don't think we've ever met a stranger you know, I'm the type of guy, I can get on an elevator with you, and by the time we get to the next floor, I'm going to know how many kids you got, 
okay? Whether you're married, whether you're divorced, whether you know Jesus, you're going to know by the time I get out there. I'm, I'm going to know you. So that's just the way me and her are. We'll stop and some people actually think we're nuts because we'll be having conversations with people in the story we don't even know. <laughs> but how else do you get to know people? But you're going through the line. Have you ever seen somebody at one a register and, and they just look miserable and you know you're going, how you doing today? And, they're just, and they just look at you. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've known pastors like that. You know, they'll give you the typical answer. You know, oh, yeah, well, I'm doing fine, you know. And they, but they're never engaged. They don't open their doors. They're not open to anybody. You know, the, one of the prerequisites, and we're going to get to Timothy eventually, where, you know, one of the things that, that a pastor ought to be is hospitable. Hospitality ought to be the hallmark of a man of God or a woman of God. Fellowship is another word for it. Koinonia in the Greek. Fellowship. I, I, every time I hit this subject, I'm going to drive it home to you guys. Get together. Any chance you get. If you haven't been to each other's house, do it. Invite people. You know, I realize that we're, we're all busy. Everybody's busy. But fellowship is important. How else can you invest in somebody's life? How else can you be there to pray with somebody if you never talk? If, if church, listen, do not mistake the hour and a half that you come to this church on Sunday morning or Sunday evening. Uh, of course, on Sunday evening, it'd be more like two hours, but whatever. You know, don't, don't count that as just a fellowship time because really it's one-sided, you see. But fellowship, and we sit down in the fellowship hall, or we're sitting at your table, and we're breaking bread together, or whether we're just drinking a cup of coffee, we're having a conversation, we're talking, you know, and we're investing our time in each other. That's fellowship. That's what Paul had to do. He sat there for a year and a half because he loved those people. He spent really two years there. So the first half of it, he was simply preaching the gospel. Those that got saved, he invested that time in teaching them the Word of God. And it's important, but you have to be invested in people's lives to do it. This mindset of a pastor thinking that somehow, you know, well, I have my personal... I actually had a guy tell me one time, <laughs> many years ago, I had a pastor tell me that, you know, he's like, well, I, you know, he actually had on his cards, okay, he would pass it on his card. He would have the time, like you couldn't call him past this time. And I remember pointing out to him one day, I said, brother, so if I'm dying, <laughs> don't call you, right? Is that what you, that's what you're telling people. Well, no, he says in emergencies, you could, but it doesn't say that. It says don't call past, you know, eight or nine o'clock. I said, so you know what I said, why don't you just do everybody a favor and quit? Just get out. You don't love people. I mean, I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm being honest. Listen, it's obvious you don't love people. Get out. You can't even have a conversation with people. And then you tell them when they can visit, when they can't. Get out. Do it now. Save yourself the heartache and all the poor people it's going to sit under you. You know? Paul didn't do that. Paul was a type of man who was invested. He invested his time. He taught them. Why? Because he loved them. Just like the Jews. We're going to see that here in a moment. Even though he said, now I'm going to the Gentiles. He can't help himself. Why? He loves them. He just wants people to come to know Jesus. Verse 12. And when Galileo, or Galileo, excuse me, was the deputy of Acacia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul 
like they always did, and brought him to the judgment seat. Now, this judgment seat that, that, of Galileo um, is actually still there to this day. Now, I've never personally been there, but I've had friends who have. And uh, you go over there, and, and uh, they take you on a tour. They'll take you. That judgment seat is still there to this day, where Paul stood, and he stood before this man and uh, was being accused. Verse 13, saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, just as a, a, a small side note, the fact is, is that Paul taught exactly what the gospel was, but the Jews saw it that he was teaching contrary to the law. But in fact, he was teaching exactly what the law and the prophets had taught. The law and the prophets said that the Messiah would come. Paul was teaching that. You know, the law and the prophets said that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. The law, you know, Paul was teaching that. It said that he would be wrongly accused. Paul was teaching that. It said that the Messiah would be crucified. You know, that he would be nailed to a tree, be pierced in his hands and his feet. Paul was teaching that. Paul was teaching everything that was absolutely from the law and the prophets. But this was the way they saw it. And so they brought this false accusation against him. And when Paul, verse 14, was now about to open his mouth, Galileo said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O you Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and of your law, look you to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Galileo cared for none of those things. Now, it is interesting that, you know, this Galileo, he gets kind of a bad rap because of this uh, in, uh, with historians and Bible teachers alike. Uh, but when you look to secular history, uh, really nothing but good is ever said about him, that he was a very just and he was a very fair man, and that his judgments were always fair and balanced. And, uh, you know, his brother was actually uh, Seneca, who was a famous Roman, and Seneca even wrote about him and said that Galileo was one of the most loving and just men that he had ever met, even though it was his brother. And so it really, when you look to secular history, there was nothing but good things said about Galileo. Uh, but yet because he, he didn't care for what was going on, but yet he didn't stop the Greeks from beating Sothenes. He didn't stop that. That kind of gets him a bad rap with some teachers. But really, uh, the secular history would say just the opposite. Verse 18. And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence to Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, my two favorite, my one favorite couple, having shorn his head in Centria, for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Once again, here's Paul, he can't help himself. So he's right back in his synagogue, even though just a minute ago he said, that's it. Your blood's on your own. As I'm going to the, to, you know, I'm, now I'm going to the Gentiles. But, you know, he couldn't help himself. He loves them. Paul's intention was to return to Syria, uh, which is where the church of Antioch was. That's what his intention was. But it says that Paul took this, he shaves his head and he has taken this vow. He's talking about the vow of the Nazarite. And when a Jew would take a vow of a Nazarite, uh, it was only for a period of 30 days. And it was a time of consecration. And so Paul is going, he's going up, he wants to go up to Jerusalem to make the feast. Okay? Or at least one of them. He wants to make one of them, one of the three that they're going to be having. 
He wants to make it. Now, the last time he was there, remember, they questioned him. They said, look, you know, sponsor these young men. Go into the temple and cleanse yourselves and show them that you're a good Jew, you know. And, and this is what the church in Jerusalem had done. Keep that in mind. So Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem, and he goes through this vow of consecration, which is a vow of a Nazarite. So during that 30 days, they would eat no meat, nor would they drink wine. And they would shave their head at the beginning of the 30 days. At the end of the 30 days, uh, they would shave their head again. Whatever hair was left, they would take that into, and they would offer that as a burnt offering unto the Lord. And so... Uh, I think, in my humble opinion, I think what Paul was doing here was simply preparing himself for his entrance back into Jerusalem. And uh, because he had kind of gotten the heat the last time he was at the church there, Paul said, I become all things to all men that by all means I might win some. To the Jews, he said, I became a Jew. So I think that that's what it is with Paul. I think when you see those things, don't think that somehow Paul was giving into the law or that he was, you know, uh, uh, embracing uh, religiosity. He really wasn't. He was simply trying to minister and not causing anybody else to stumble in his uh, desire to win them to the Lord. I think that's really all it was. So look at verse 20. And when they desired him to tarry there longer uh, time with them, he consented not. But bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. But I will return again unto you if God will. If you take a notes, mark that down. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at, at Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. That's an interesting statement to me. Now he's went through all this, he gets there, and all it says about his time at the church there was that he saluted the church and then he went and then he left. And he went down to Antioch. So he gets to Jerusalem and he says nothing about the feast. He says nothing about what went on. He says nothing. He just says he you know, Luke's the one who wrote this, but he said so he saluted the church and he left and went to Antioch. Now, Paul tells them that I will return if God wills. It reminds me of a passage in the book of James, and it's chapter 4. You, you can write it down and look back for yourself. But it's chapter 4, verse 13 through 15. I'm just going to read it for you. He says, Go to now ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city, and continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor, and appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. So at this particular time, in talking about his return to these people, even though he wanted to, he says, you know, if the Lord wills, I'll be back. Sometimes you're not going to know exactly what God's will is at any particular moment. There's no, there's no harm or there's no shame in saying, well, you know what, if the Lord wills, this is what's going to happen. You know, but there's other times in my life when I know exactly what the will of the Lord is. And there was the same way with Paul. But in this particular instance, with him going back to these guys, he wasn't sure. So he told him, as long as the Lord wills, then, uh, you know, I'll be back. I do think it's interesting, though, that Paul really says nothing about that visit, getting back to that point. You know, <laughs> Luke. Luke just simply brushes over it. Now, it has been suggested, and I think there's truth in it, 
that Paul was not warmly welcomed when he got back to Jerusalem this time. You know, and why was that? Well, there's several reasons for it. And, and he wasn't warmly welcomed. And so, uh, you know, he just saluted them. Hey, guys, and bye, guys. And he left. He was out of there. He was gone. He went down to, you know, to Antioch. But why wasn't he? I want you to consider this. What was the reason? Or let me rephrase that. What, was the pre, what are the prerequisites for being an apostle? One of the prerequisites for being an apostle was that you had been with Jesus. This is what it was. It tells us that in the, book, in the beginning of the book of Acts. Those who had been with him, who had sat with him, who had been taught by him. Well, Paul was an apostle, as he said, who was born out of due season. But Paul's testimony was that he had seen the Lord. But in the book of Galatians, we know that that was after Jesus' resurrection, and that was for the space of three years on the backside of the desert. So Paul had a personal testimony that Jesus had taught him one-on-one -on -one for three years after his resurrection. No other apostle had this testimony. I'm not saying that they were moved by that to jealousy, but it is possible. And I do think, you know, because you've got you to understand that you know, the church in Jerusalem, you know, you're clumping in James, the half-brother of Jesus, into that, you know. And it's like, well, you know, whatever. The fact is, is that Paul, at the time, at the time, had not wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. A lot of the things that God was doing in his life was yet to come. And so there was that proof period. And we're actually going to see as we get into the book of Corinthians, they question his apostleship. I mean, nobody questions the apostleship of Paul now. Because we have history and we see he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. God used him to do that. We know that Paul was the 12th apostle to replace Judas. We know it wasn't Matthias. We understand all those things. But at that time, you know, there was a little bit of animosity. And he was not really warmly welcomed when he got there. So he simply saluted the church and he departed. Verse 23. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. And so Luke recorded only that Paul spent some time in Antioch without really giving us, once again, any definite period of time. He just says, well, then he left. <laughs> and he went over Galatia all the way in Phrygia and, of course, strengthening the disciples. Now, I want you to notice something, though. In the last five verses, okay, Luke records a journey that Paul took that was over 1,500 miles in five verses. He covers, now think about this. Now, how did Paul travel 1,500 miles? He did it by foot, he did it by horseback, and he did it by ship. But 15, now think about that. That'd be like you walking from here to Colorado, okay? Now think about that. It might take you a couple days you understand? It might take you a couple months, but it'd take you a long time to walk from here to there, even if you got to ride a horse or even if you got to take a, you know, a small boat somewhere across the creek or whatever the case may be. My point being, Luke only gives us five verses of a 1,500-mile journey that probably took months. 
And can you imagine all of the stuff that God was doing during that time? And yet that portion of the apostolic history, Luke just leaves blank. We just don't know. Why did he do that? I don't know. I'm going to ask him when I get there. Uh, I really wish he hadn't done that, but he did. But I just find that interesting that he just left that blank. Verse 24. And a certain Jew named Apollos. Now we're getting to the end of it. Born at Alexandria, an eloquent man. And a mighty and mighty in the scriptures came to Ephesus. So Paul is on his way, making his rounds through Galatian for you and coming back towards Ephesus. But before he gets there, another Jew arises, another Jewish teacher by the name of Apollos. And it says that he was an eloquent man. He was brilliant is what that means. Brilliant he was. And he was mighty in the scripture. And, and really in the Greek, that, that term doesn't mean that he just knew the scriptures, but that his exegetical expertise was far above his peers. This man was not only did he know the scriptures, but he was able to expound them, to connect them, and to preach them. He understood them. He was mighty in the scriptures. So he, he was up there. You know, I'd love Apollos. Apollos is one of those guys I just love. I love this guy. I wish I knew more about him, but we don't. But he was, we know this much about him, that he was eloquent. He was brilliant. He was a mighty man of the scriptures, and he was a preacher. Until verse 25, this man was instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. It's interesting, it says that he was, you know, he only knew the baptism of John. More than likely, Apollos had been a disciple of John. And so what was he preaching? Well, he was preaching what John preached. A, a preaching of repentance. You know, turn from your wicked way because the Messiah is at hand. The Messiah is coming. Now, I don't know where Apollos kind of stopped, but he had not gotten the message that the Messiah had come. He only knew the baptism of repentance that John preached. That's all he knew. But he knew everything else. He knew the Messiah was coming. That's what he was preaching to them. He was reasoning with them that the Messiah should be at hand. And he began, verse 26, to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, now I want you to connect these guys, Aquila and Priscilla, they're at where? The synagogue together husband and wife great guy great just just a good couple anyway they're there at the synagogue and they're hearing apollos who's speaking speaking boldly but he missed something and it says they took unto him and expounded unto him the way of god more perfectly <laughs> think about this consider the following this is amazing. This is why I love Apollos. This is a guy who is brilliant. Okay? He's eloquent. He's a mighty man of the scriptures. This is a guy who can preach and teach. And his exegetical expertise just flows. And he's an orator above orators. This guy can do it. But Aquila and Priscilla, who are blue-collar workers, okay, I love this couple because they're just tent makers, man. But who have they been hanging around with? Paul the Apostle. <laughs> they've, been, they've been hanging around Paul. 
you know, they, they, and they've spent a lot of time with Paul, making tents and listening to him teach. And so when they hear Apollos, Apollos only has part of the story. Now think about this. Here's these blue-colored couple, working-class dogs, and they hear this guy who's mighty. He's eloquent. He's respected. He's preaching. And they, they said, hey, uh, can we get some lunch after synagogue today? You know? <laughs> so they take him under themselves, and they begin to say, you know, let me talk to you about Jesus. And they begin to expound to him the way of God more perfectly. The thing I love about Apollos, and this is the point I want to make, is that though he was a teacher among teachers, he was teachable. And that is a trait that is rare, gang. Listen to me. It is rare, but it should not be. Amongst the children of God, whether you're a teacher, a preacher, a pastor, or pew warmer, the thing you want to have is a teachable spirit. You want to be able to, to learn something that maybe you don't know. Now, I can tell you as far as among pastors, and I've known hundreds in my life, and I'm not dead yet, so I imagine I'll probably wind up meeting a few more. But they do tend to have a tendency to think they know it all. And often, it is hard to shake them even from error. It's too bad, especially denominational guys. Because they have towed the party line so long that even when you show them black and white in the scripture, sometimes they're hard to accept it. But they shouldn't be. Apollos was a mighty man in the scriptures. Now, think about this. Aquila and Priscilla, great couple, did I mention that? They're just a great couple. Not only did they, they work together, but they taught together. Because it says that they took him and taught to him. You know, expounded to him the way of it. Doesn't say that you know Aquila did it. It says Aquila and Priscilla did it. They expounded unto him. So they were both in the ministry together. What a great illustration for any married couple. You know, having your wife with you and, and being able to not only work together but to minister together—that's just a blessing. You know, and if you have that, you, you you should praise God for it. If you don't have it, you should seek it. You know, and because uh, it's just such a, such a great thing. But anyway, you know, Apollos could have rejected it. He could have said, well, who are you? You know, I mean, he could have, but he didn't. And I just find this such a refreshing thing in this man of God, that he was teachable by these blue-collar people who simply were tent makers and yet knew exactly what the gospel was because they had hung around Paul the Apostle and they had learned from him. Remember, that's Paul's purpose. Paul will eventually write to Timothy and he'll tell Timothy, I have taught you, son, so that you in turn will be able to teach others also who are worthy. That's my calling. I've always seen that. You know, even when I pastored, I never seen myself as just a pastor. You know, I loved pastoring. And to some, I'm still their pastor. You know, there's many people on radio who listen to me who still consider me their pastor. And that's fine. And that, that, that's fine. But, but what I really consider myself is a teacher. And my purpose is to teach you in order so that you, in turn, can teach others. It, it shouldn't stop with me, you see. It shouldn't stop with you. It should continue to go, you know, reproduce is what I'm saying. It's just the way it is. And Paul saw it that way. And so he taught Aquila and Priscilla, who now take this learned man, and they expound to him 
the way of God more perfectly, and he accepts it. And what's the result of it? Look at verse 27. And when he was disposed to pass into Acacia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who when he was come, helped them much that had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing how, by the scriptures, that Jesus was Messiah. That's what it resulted in. So not only does this mighty man of God, this mighty teacher, this guy who was brilliant, eloquent, listen to Aquila and Priscilla, who was just working class dogs, but mighty themselves by the power of God and with their knowledge of Jesus Christ. It transforms this man who's already anointed by God. It transforms his teaching to the point where not only does he reason with the Jews like Paul was doing, which caused him to what? Get stoned, get imprisoned, and get beaten. But now Apollos is convincing them. And he's convincing them publicly, showing them from the scriptures that Jesus indeed is the Messiah. Apollos, just a great man of God, but nonetheless, a man of God who knew a lot, but didn't know it all, but because he had a teachable spirit, was went on to win many, many more people to Jesus, you know. That's the way it ought to be. We need to have a teachable spirit at all times, especially in the things of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us to have a teachable spirit, Lord. And so often, uh, when things that we hold to be true sometimes that are not are confronted by those who may know a little more, Father, open our eyes to the, to the wisdom of the truth of your word that we might look at those things in the Scripture, Lord Father, and see that they are true. But help us to be teachable. That in turn, Lord Father, we might teach others. Father, we pray that you would take this message. I pray, Lord Father, that you would simply use it to bring people to yourself. I pray that you would open the minds and the hearts of those listening by radio, Lord, to the truth of Jesus Christ and how much he loves and how much he gave for them. And help them come to the saving knowledge, Lord Father, having their minds converted. In Jesus' name, amen.